I begin this morning telling you the story of a church who came to realize the importance of humility. So it formed a church committee to find and recognize the most humble person in the church. Many names were submitted and numerous candidates evaluated. Finally, the church committee came to a unanimous decision. They selected a quiet little man who always lived in the background of things and had never taken credit for anything he had done, and he would be bestowed upon the title, the most humble person in the church. They would honor him by awarding him a most humble pin. And that's what it said on the pin, most humble, for his faithful, humble service to the Lord in the church. However, the next Sunday, they had to take the pin away from him because he decided to wear that pin to church, one that the church had given him. Such is the nature of this thing we call humility. Once we recognize it, once we call attention to it, once we even think about it, somehow humility is diminished in its value. And hence lies the tension of cultivating a heart of humility. And yet, as we're going to find out uh, this morning, we as followers of Jesus Christ have a responsibility to be humble. How do we take on this responsibility while still maintaining confidence in how we live this life? Can we live confidently and yet humbly? Because humility is a state of mind, it is an attitude, it is a a, a characteristic of the heart. It's something that we often cannot see. How can humility live itself out practically in our life? We want to take a look also this morning at that topic. And why of all the responsibilities, as we've been studying the book of 1 Peter, does Peter choose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to end his letter with the responsibility to be humble. Let's take a look at these questions this morning as we conclude our study of 1 Peter today and end our series entitled, Own Up, A Call for Personal Responsibility. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, as we take a look at verses 5 to 15. 1 Peter, chapter 5. As we exposit this morning, verses 5 to 14. We conclude our series this week, and we will begin a new sermon series next week. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Peter writes these words. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed in humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we remember the sermon from last week, there was a charge in verse 1 of chapter 5 for the elders of the church to shepherd the flock, to take care of one another, a care that makes a difference. And it would have to be exemplified from the top working its way down. Now in verse 5, there is a challenge for those who are younger to submit to those who are older, to those who are in spiritual authority over them. 
I wonder how many young people here in our service this morning believe that they are smarter than their parents, believe that they are smarter than those who are older than them. It doesn't have to be young people. It could be middle-aged men and women who think still that they are smarter than their own parents or those who are in their 60s or 70s. We often have the notion that those who are older are old-fashioned. They are not with the times. They do not understand the current cultural climate in which we live. And yet, regardless of what you believe of them, the Bible says, in a spirit of humility, we are to submit ourselves under their spiritual authority. You see, the charge very clearly stated by Peter here in verse 5 is for all of us to take on the responsibility to be humble, to be clothed in humility. Humility is a state of mind. It is a heart condition which cannot often be seen. And therefore, humility is lived out practically and seen through submission. And that's why the Bible gives a charge. Yes, all of you, all of us, young and old, should be submissive to one another, should be humble in spirit towards one another. It takes a lot of humility to take instruction and advice from someone who you believe you are better than them. It takes a lot of humility to submit ourselves one to another. Peter quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, as he ends verse 5. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here, Peter gives us a clear glimpse into how God operates. Quite clearly, God opposes the proud. God does not bless the proud. In fact, the Bible tells us he humbles the proud. If you want a clear example of this, take a look at Daniel chapter 4 and see what God does with a prideful King Nebuchadnezzar. When King Nebuchadnezzar sees all that God has given him and he says and utters those words, look at all that I have done. You see very vividly what God does to the proud. But to those who are humble, Peter writes, God gives grace. God gives undeserved favor. God enjoys giving grace to those who are humble. And if you want to experience more of God's grace, then take up the responsibility to be humble. Those are the words of Scripture. Look at the vivid image of how Peter tells us we are to take on this responsibility. The Bible tells us we are to be clothed with humility. Humility should permeate every aspect of our life from the inside out as if we are draped, covered in humility. The idea of being clothed in humility does not mean we are to mask on the outside what is truly on the inside. And we as Asians are very good at faking humility on the outside. And yet inwardly we are prideful of heart. Peter says, from the inside out, you are to be clothed in humility. Humility permeates every aspect of who you are. 
As many of you know, a few weeks ago I was in Davao. On my flight back from Davao to Manila, I had taken my seat in the airplane. I noticed that there was a passenger walking down the aisle. And as he was walking down the aisle, quite a number of people took out their camera phones to take a picture of him. Uh, He sat in the row right in front of me. And I noticed that the lady across the aisle from me had her camera up trying to take a picture of him. And he asked her, would you like to take a picture of me? And she giggled uh, and she said yes. And he posed uh, for her picture. In fact, uh, he asked uh, a few people around where I was sitting, would you like to take my picture? And they wanted to and, and so he posed for them. I, of course, had no idea who this guy was. And so I asked uh, uh, a woman sitting next to me, is he famous? And she said to me, yes, he is an actor. So I snapped a stolen picture of this actor and uh, vibrated it, sent it to my wife, Cindy. And I asked her, would you like me to take a picture with him? Her response to me, No, there's no need to take a picture of him. He isn't that famous anymore. In my mischievous mind, I thought to myself, if this actor asks me if I wanted a picture of him, I will answer him, no, thank you. You aren't famous anymore. Of course, that would be quite mean-spirited. As I chuckled at the thought of my response, he never asked the question, and so I was never able to give my snappy reply. But as I was thinking about the culture that so prevails today, a culture where selfies are so prevalent, where you just have to be in the picture to make the picture of any worth, it's hard to tell yourself you're not famous. But maybe that's exactly what we need to tell ourselves in our culture today. So that we can clothe ourselves in humility to tell ourselves you're not famous. So that we won't begin to believe in our own hype and believe what others say of us. You're just not that famous. Peter says very clearly the charge in how we are to live. Be clothed with humility. Take on the responsibility to be humble. In verses 6 and 7, Peter will give two very practical ways humility is seen in how we live our life. Look at verse 6 with me. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Peter tells us here in verse 6, that the results of humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God is that God will be the one who exalts you in due time, in His time. I know, again, this runs counterculture with our world today. Because in our world today, we are told to market ourselves. Stand out. Make sure you rise above the crowd. To make sure that the world notices you. And that's why in our world today, so many people do outrageous things, do dumb things, just to make a name for themselves, to garner for themselves their 15 
minutes of fame. But when you look at the men and women who really leave a lasting legacy down the generations, you find that these men and women are not those who set out to be famous. These men and women of lasting legacies set out for themselves to be faithful to what God has called them to do, to humbly live out God's will for their life. And God has exalted them in their lifetime. I think of men and women like Abraham Lincoln, people like William Carey and Hudson Taylor, people like William Wilberforce and John Sung and Susanna Wesley and Fanny Crosby. Men and women who did not set out for themselves to garner for themselves 15 minutes of fame, but in their humility desired to live out their lives faithfully for how God has called them and God has exalted them in their lifetime. And yet there are countless many, perhaps many sitting here this morning, who will not be exalted in this lifetime. But in God's time, He will exalt your life when the books of our life is opened up, when the biographies written about our life is opened up in heaven in eternity. And it is in that moment that what you have done for the Lord is proclaimed for all eternity forever. Malachi chapter 3 verse 16 tells us the stories of our life are being written in the annals of heaven. The faithful things we do for the Lord are being recorded that the omniscient God does not forget what we do in His name. And when we understand that, we understand that we can live in humility knowing that God will exalt us and honor us in due time. You see, number one, if you're taking notes, humility is submitting to God's timing for your exaltation. Humility is submitting to God's timing for your exaltation in this life or the next. And that last phrase is important. In this life or the next. Humility is submitting to God's Timing for your exaltation in this life or the next. It's living out a life that says, you know what? It's okay if I'm number two. Throughout my life, I'm number two. Because I know that in heaven, if I've lived faithfully, then God will rise me and raise me to a position of honor. We all want to be honored. That is how God has uniquely created us. It is not wrong to crave eternal rewards. In fact, that is the motivation of how Jesus says we are to live our life. If you want to live your life for your 15 minutes of fame, understand that that is all it is. It will soon be forgotten. How many of you know who was the valedictorian last year of our school? How many of you know who was the NBA champ 10 years ago? 20 years ago? How many of you know who won the Nobel Peace Prize or the prize for physics or mathematics 
20 years ago. We're not diminishing their honor. But honor in this lifetime is literally 15 minutes of fame. And then a bigger story comes. And yet if we humbly submit ourselves to God's timing for our own exaltation in this life or the next, we are reminded that when He exalts us for His glory's sake, it is forever. That is how we can live humbly. That is how we can let others have honor. That is how we can allow them to succeed in life because we follow the things of God without being jealous. Knowing that we submit to God's timing for our exaltation in this life or the next. I once heard a humorous story, not a true story, but a humorous one about the Pope who was on a visit to America for a period of time. On his last day in America, the Pope was delayed due to some last-minute meetings, and he was unable to break away to catch his chartered flight. He booked another flight, but he could not depend on his very slow Pope-mobile, and so he phoned for a limousine car service. When the car service limousine arrived, the driver was joyfully surprised that it was the Pope who had called for him. But the driver became very nervous uh, at the VIP he was driving, and so he proceeded to drive very slowly to bring the Pope to the airport. The Pope, on the other hand, became very nervous about missing his flight and told the driver to hurry up. But it didn't seem to make much of a difference. The driver, in fact, even went slower, perhaps wanting to keep the Pope in the limousine as long as he could to bask in his holiness. Well, the Pope could no longer be delayed, and so he asked that he switch places with the limousine driver. He would drive, the driver would just sit in the back. How can you refuse a request like that? And so they switched places. The Pope got behind the wheel, the driver in the back. And the Pope sped off, reaching speeds of 85 miles per hour. He sped by a police car who noticed this car speeding and turned on his sirens to pull the car over. Uh, The police officer approached uh, the Pope, who had rolled down his windows, and the officer was shocked when he discovered the famous personality behind the wheel. He excused himself, and he frantically phoned his police chief. And he said, Chief! I've stopped a very important figure for speeding. I don't know what to do. His chief told him, What do you mean you don't know what to do? Give him a speeding ticket. The officer said, Sir, in all honesty, you don't know. I can't. The chief said, Why can't you? The law is the law. No one is above the law. Who is it anyways that you pulled over? Is it the mayor? The officer said to the chief, No, sir. Is it the governor? No, sir. Is it a congressman? No, sir. Is it the president? No, sir. Well, then who is it? The officer said to the chief over the phone, Sir, I don't know, actually. All I know is that he must be very important because the Pope is driving him to the airport. I love this story because this is a commentary 
on our culture today. It is a commentary on a culture that exalts men and women who do not deserve to be exalted, who completely miss the point of who should be honored and who should not. And I'm not going to talk about culture, but for the life of me, I don't understand why people like the Kardashians or Caitlyn Jenner and others take up so much of our time and our interest in our guilty readings of the tabloids. Look what the Bible says in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He, would you circle that pronoun, that He may exalt you in due time. You see, when we live this life, we do not live it for the applause of many. We do not do it so that the world will cheer us. Notice what verse 6 says. So that He, so that God Himself may exalt you. We live for the applause of one. Not for the applause of many. For the applause of one. And that is God Himself. And if that is the truth of the Scriptures, then we can live in humility knowing that the state of mind in which we are living in is something that is applauded by God. And He, through His omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, His sovereignty, His justice, His righteousness, will ensure that you are exalted in due time. I want you to think about the profoundness of that truth. We do not need to clamor for the world to applause us, which many of us do, to get our 15 minutes of fame because God has promised that if we please Him, He will ensure that our lives are exalted for His glory. Verse 7. Casting all your cares upon Him, for he cares for you. Here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Peter writes one of the most beloved verses, one of the most beloved verses of comfort in the Bible for a believer. And yet so often we take this verse completely out of context. What does this verse, who many of us can memorize, have anything to do with humility? Right? What does casting your cares upon him have anything to do with humility, which is the context of this passage? You see, when someone casts their cares upon Jesus, they put themselves in the hand of the Lord. They throw up their own hands figuratively and recognize their own inabilities and their own inadequacies. And that is the very picture of humility. Putting yourself in a position of acknowledging who you really are in your inability to do anything. And when we are unable to do anything, that is when we cast our cares upon Him. But that should not be the last option. That should be a state of mind. That should be how we live in a very practical way, humility in our hearts. And that is the second principle described in this passage of how humility is seen practically in our life. 
Humility, number two, is casting your cares on Jesus. In doing so, recognizing your inabilities and inadequacies. Casting your cares on Jesus, recognizing your inabilities and inadequacies. Many of us have forgotten that apart from Him, the Bible tells us, we can do nothing. And we are really unable to do anything in our lives. And so why do we worry about things we have no control over? And that's why the plea of Peter, cast your cares upon him. Seed control of your life. Yield control of your life. Because you can't do anything anyways to the one who is omnipotent and can do all things. We have forgotten that the basis of this verse is rooted in a context of a call for humility. Casting our cares is a sign of our humility. Recognizing our lack of knowledge, our inadequacies, our inabilities, and recognizing that there is someone more powerful than us who can take care of our problems. And it takes a humble person to acknowledge how inadequate you are. And to recognize that there is someone greater than us. I like what Philip Brooks comments. He says this. The true way to be humble is not to stoop until you are smaller than yourself. But to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what is the real smallness of your greatness is. And I like that last phrase. To show yourself the smallness of your greatness. You see, humility is not bowing your heads and saying, Woe to me, I'm so inadequate, I'm, I'm nothing. That's not humility. Humility is standing true to yourself. This is who I am. This is who God has made me with my talents and my gifts and abilities. This is who I am. And this is who I am in comparison or when compared to the omnipotence of God, almighty God, I realize it comes to mind the smallness of my greatness. We are who God has made us. And through His grace, He has given many of us many different talents. But for many people, those giftings have made you with a very figuratively big head. Because we have nothing to compare ourselves against with. We only compare it with ourselves or others. But when we recognize and affirm that there is an omnipotent God, we realize very quickly the smallness of our greatness. That is humility. It allows us to cast our cares upon one who is supremely more able to deal with the situation at hand. Many people have asked me, Pastor, is it possible to be confident and humble at the same time? Is it possible to be confident and humble at the same time? And the answer is absolutely yes. It is possible to be confident and humble at the same time. It is possible because that confidence is foundation in the enabling work of God in our lives. We can be supremely confident knowing that the God of the universe 
stands behind us, stands in front of us, stands beside us, picks us up. Now, this is not a confidence that is foundationed upon yourself. Because a foundation, a confidence foundation upon yourself is simply pride. But one can be supremely confident in business, in medicine, in law, in school, knowing that the author of all good things has given you what he has given you, knowing that apart from him you can do nothing. And with that confidence, we go forth to affect this world for Christ. That is our boldness for him. And yet we can still remain humble. I think of someone like President Abraham Lincoln. I'm reading one of his biographies. He was about as confident as any leader of a country must be, much less the president of America. And as he writes the Gettysburg Address and other wonderful speeches, you can see from his words a man of great confidence. And yet in those words of confidence like, the Emancipation Proclamation, you see a humility in his writing because in the journals of Abe Lincoln, you read about a man who wrestles with many of the decisions, very difficult decisions for a country with his knees in prayer. And so one can be very humble of heart and yet in that humility, casting our cares upon the one who cares so much for us, and through that process stand more confidently than any other confident person in himself. I know it's a more profound concept. Again, go back and think about that. It is in our humility that God is seen. It is in our inadequacies and our inabilities that God reveals himself. Notice the end of verse 5. He delights. He desires to give grace to the humble. I'm reminded of a story I read of Carl Jung, who told a story of a man who asked the rabbi, how come in the olden days God would show himself to people but today, nobody ever sees God. And the rabbi replied to that man, it's because nowadays, nobody can bow low enough. And that is true of our culture today. Nobody can see God. Very few see God because they cannot bow low enough. And if you cannot cast all your cares upon him, acknowledging your inability in recognition of a God of omnipotence, then perhaps it is an insight into your heart of whether you are humble or not. But when you can throw everything on Him, when you can release full control of your life and show forth humility, then you recognize what supreme confidence looks like with a heart of humility. Did you ever think about the fact that worrying is rooted in pride. We never think about that, do we? When we worry, it's actually a sign of pride. 
Because when we worry, we attribute the solution to our problems only to ourselves. And if I can't solve it, who else can? It's an issue of pride intrinsically. And so Peter writes, Cast your care upon him, for he cares for you. In verses 8 to 11, Peter now gives a word of caution and then a word of encouragement as he closes this book. Let's take a look. Verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. What a very vivid image Peter paints. He tells us, be very careful how you live this Christian life, because the devil is out there. And what is he doing? He is there ready to devour you. It's a picture of a very hungry lion eagerly waiting to take you down when that opportunity arises. He is walking about. The devil, Satan, is not sitting back waiting for us to fall. He is actively engaging to see when you let your guard down, when he will take you out. That's why, my friends, understand that Satan, the devil, is never your friend. Never underestimate his desire to destroy your life. Nothing makes him more glad than when a Christian falls. The Bible describes him as an adversary. He is our enemy. The things of sin are not there to pleasure us. The things of sin are there to destroy us. Never minimize the effect of sin in your life. And even more, these words of caution so that we can remain humble and cultivate and take on the responsibility to be humble. Why? Because at any time, what will the devil use often to take you down? He will use pride. He will use pride. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that is so true. As I read through the scriptures, I read of men and women of faith, but I read of their failures. I can go from the Old Testament and think of Adam and Moses and David. And I can look at the New Testament like Peter and Thomas and Ananias and Sapphira and, and countless others who because of pride took their sights away from the Lord. Why is pride so dangerous? Because when we are prideful, the focus shifts from God to us, to me. That is the danger of pride, taking the spotlight that should be directed on God and now directing it to me. And that is why to counter pride is humility. Because humility takes the spotlight from us and refocuses it back to God. You see, the solution to pride is more christ 
As F.B. Myers would say, the only hope of a decreasing self is an increasing Christ. The only hope of a decreasing self is an increasing Christ. And that's why the caution continues in verse 9. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Resist him, fight him. How do you fight the wiles of Satan? You take on the responsibility to be humble. It is in our humility that we resist the pride of our heart. Did you get that? It is in our humility that we resist the pride of our heart and thus push away the wiles of the devil which leads to our destruction. Be steadfast, Peter writes. Cling to what you believe in. Recognize that the glory awaits us in God's perfect timing. Recognize that you are inadequate in comparison to God's omnipotence. Be steadfast. Guard your heart in your humility is the solution to the issue of pride of heart. So it's okay that I don't win awards that others win. It's okay that someone else can buy a new car and I'm driving a car that barely holds up. It's okay that someone's house is so much bigger and they can run all the air conditions in their room while I have to watch the air condition in my house because of the bill. For me, it's, it's okay if someone has a bigger church with more people in it. It's okay. It's okay because I want to guard my heart to know that in my humility is the solution to the pride of heart issue. Be careful. Resist the devil because he will dangle out for you the carrot of this world and say, hey, why don't you have that? Hey, why don't you have this? And that which you didn't care much about, that, that, that seed of pride begins to grow. And it begins to grow and becomes a motivating factor for why you've done what you've done. Humility of heart reminds us that it's okay that others can win all the awards and get everything. But the time will come when God will encourage the faithful. The adversary is ready to devour. Don't let your guard down. And then the word of encouragement, verse 10 and 11. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What words of encouragement by Peter to one who is suffering for the Lord's sake, for one who is trying to keep humble through it all. 
Notice that Peter focuses us on God. He is the God of all grace. He is full of undeserved favor. And God cannot wait to shower in abundance His grace in our life. He has given us eternal glory, verse 10, through His Son, Jesus Christ. But He cannot wait to give His grace to the humble. Grace is not a commodity that we have to earn. You don't get more grace going to Mass. You don't get more grace going to the confession booth. You don't get more grace doing penance. It is not a commodity. Grace is freely given by God. And He desires, as the God of all grace, to give it to the humble. Remember what 2 Corinthians 16.9 tells us. The eyes of the Lord look to and fro. The eyes of the Lord are watching and they're looking for men and women. What? Who have a heart condition, whose hearts are loyal to Him, whose hearts are committed to Him, whose hearts are humble. And what will He do? Second Chronicles 16.9 So that He can show Himself strong. So that He can show His grace to those whose hearts are humble. Remember what 2 Corinthians says. In our weakness, His strength is made perfect. God cannot wait to pour out His abundant grace in your life. If only we would keep humble. That means when we suffer in humility, it should be weighed in view of the amazing things we have coming to us. It says it right there in verse 10. God is there to perfect, to establish, to strengthen, to settle you. You see, in these words of encouragement, the God of all grace has an amazing plan for your life. And I can tell every one of you this morning that God has an amazing plan for your life. But the problem is often we're very short-sighted that when I say that to you, you say, no, he does not. Look at my sickness. Look at my troubles. Look at my sufferings. Why did my father have to lay bedridden for three years? Why did my wife have to battle cancer for 10 years? Why did God take my son at such an early age? When you tell me that God has an amazing plan for my life, I can show you that he does not. But we've missed the point. Because we don't view our life in its totality. We only view our life on earth. And that's why I have a problem with a book like Joel Olstein's Your Best Life Now. Because yes, there is a best life. There is an amazing plan for your life. But it's not only now. And for most of us, it doesn't happen now. It happens in the totality of our life. It doesn't happen in the troubles of our temporary state. It happens in the glories of eternity. 
Because the plan of God is to perfect, to establish, to strengthen, to settle us. He is the God of all grace. Take the long view. Did did you see that phrase Peter slips in there in verse 10? I don't know if you missed it. And may the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. And he slips in there a phrase. After you have suffered a while. Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Sandwiched between two of God's amazing plans is a short momentary time of troubles, sufferings on earth. But that's okay. Because taking the long view, we see that God does have an amazing plan for my life. And that life, with all of its glories may not be seen in this life and that's okay but for sure it will be seen in the life after this do you believe this do you believe this truth because if you don't believe this truth you will not be transformed of life but if you believe this truth it will transform every aspect of how you live this life you can take on the responsibility to be humble. Do you believe this truth? Years ago, I read the story of a man by the name of Parker. Parker was traveling through Alabama, which is a state in the southern U.S. It gets very hot down there, and it was one of those hot, humid Alabama summer days. He saw on the side of the road a a watermelon stand, and he knew that a nice, juicy, giant slice of watermelon would quench the thirst on such a hot and humid day. And so he pulled over his car and he stopped at the watermelon stand and he picked out the largest slice of watermelon and he asked the proprietor how much it cost. The man behind the counter said, sir, that's a dollar ten cents. And so Parker dug into his pocket and he uh, only found a dollar bill and he said, sir, I'm sorry, all I have is a dollar. That's okay, the proprietor said. I'll trust you for it. Well, that's mighty nice of you, Parker replied. And he picked up the giant slice of watermelon and he started to leave. The man behind the counter demanded, hey, where are you going? Sir, I'm going outside to eat my watermelon. But the man behind the counter said to Parker, but you forgot to give me that dollar. Parker said to him, but sir, you said you would trust me for it. Yeah, but what I meant was that I would trust you for the dime, for the 10 cents. And Parker replied, Sir, you aren't going to trust me at all. You are just going to take a 10-cent gamble on my integrity. You're going to take a 10-cent gamble on my integrity. I don't know if that story makes sense or not, but that's how we treat God. If I were to ask you the question, do you really trust God in the truths of the Scriptures? You say, yes, I trust you. But God, we can't gamble on your character. So you got to give us something. Show me 90% of your perfect plan for me, and then I'll trust you on the 10%. No, 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 God, 
too much. Show me 95% of all that you have planned, all the blessings you said you'll give me, and yeah, I'll, I'll trust you on the 5%. You know, when we treat God like that, we are gambling on His integrity. Do we not trust the God who always keeps His promises? The God who is omniscient, who sees everything. The God who never forgets. Can we not trust Him? But you know what? God is so gracious. He actually gave us 99% so that we only have to trust that 1%. You see, God said, okay. You want me to show you my words hold true? We say, yes, show us. God said, okay. I sent you my son, my only begotten son, to die on your behalf, to stand in your place. Is that not enough for you to trust me? God has given us His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. Is that not proof positive enough that He has for us in our life an amazing plan? Is that not enough for us to be encouraged? Is that not enough for us to keep humble, knowing that if He can save us through His Son, and has done so, that He will give us the very best, exalting us in His due time. You better go home and think about that. As I've had to struggle with that this week. In the moments of my own self-doubt, I realize I'm gambling against the integrity and the character of God. Forgetting that he's already shown me through his son just how much grace he has poured out. And then Peter concludes with these words in verse 12 to 14. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greet you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Peter ends with some warm concluding greetings, noting that the carrier of the letter is Silas of Paul and Silas' fame of his second missionary journey. He extends to those who are reading this letter, all the kind thoughts and well wishes and loving affections of those who were with him in Rome, including Mark, John Mark, who would later on write the Gospel of Mark. As we conclude this book, I wondered this week, why would God inspire Peter to end with the responsibility to be humble as the concluding thought? He begins this book with lots of responsibilities to be a witness to the world, to endure suffering, 
And he includes this book with the responsibility to be humble. I believe he concludes this book with this responsibility because this is the bedrock responsibility. If you cannot take on the responsibility to be humble, to turn the spotlight away from you back to God, then you cannot do the other responsibilities. You cannot do the other 11. You cannot be a witness to the world. You cannot suffer for his sake. You cannot care with such genuine care that it transforms another's life. You cannot submit. And the list goes on. You see, it begins with a heart of humility. The only hope of a decreasing self is an increasing Christ. Be clothed in humility, my friends. Know where you stand in the pecking order of things. You may think you are quite high in this country's pecking order. But when in comparison to the omnipotence of God, you will recognize the smallness of your greatness. Be not afraid. God will honor you in his due time. In this life, but most likely in the next. But that's okay. Because he has shown forth through his son, Jesus Christ, that what he has promised, he will fulfill. And so it is my prayer for this church, that this church would be a church full of humble people. It is okay with me if this church never becomes famous, it never becomes one of the biggest. It's okay because it's not about that. And it's okay that no one knows us here in this little corner of Grace Village. It's okay if no one ever speaks about the name GCCP. It's okay because if this church faithfully cultivates a heart of humility, the applause of the one who really matters, he will be smiling, looking down from heaven. That is not because I wish it so. It is because I know it's so. Because the church that God commends in the book of the Revelation is a church of little strength. And in the weakness of our strength, the perfection of God's strength will be seen. And for that, I'm immensely excited. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is good for me to be reminded of these words as I hope it has touched the hearts of the men and women this morning. Cultivate in our hearts a heart of humility, recognizing daily the smallness of our greatness, looking forward to that day when you will exalt us in your due time for your glory's sake. In your eyes, may we be found as men and women, a body of Christ who is of little strength because we cannot wait that the God of all grace will show forth and pour out his grace, undeserved blessings and favor upon his church of weakness 
so that your strength will be perfected. May it be never said of this church that it is a church of certain individuals. But may it be said of this church that it is the church of Christ where the people there are nobodies and yet we are somebodies in your sight. And for that, we take assurance and comfort. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.